Revolution. I'm Cody Calmers, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. Yep, so, uh, what is it? Third week in 2021. A lot of resemblance to 2020, I'm not going to lie. It has been a tough start to the year. The main thing um, is if you follow the show, you will have noticed that I didn't release any episodes in December. Um, And I mentioned a couple times that I was working on a big deadline for my, uh, you know, sort of PhD progress. And essentially it's, uh, I think the general term for it is uh, your quals, but it is um, at Oxford, it's called your transfer of status. And it's essentially where you go from a sort of, I guess, probationary um, PhD student to like a PhD candidate. That's the basic idea. And it's here, it's kind of like the halfway point of your um, PhD. And so I was working on that for most of December. That's what I was focusing on. I sort of put aside everything else and sort of tried to lock into that. Um, you know, at least that was the idea, sort of various levels of success on that. And, uh, I submitted the, the written version of it. And then, uh, last week, um, on Thursday was, I think it was what the 13th or something like that was the um, oral portion of it, the oral examination. And I found out at the end of that, that I, uh, did not succeed in transferring and I failed and I will have to redo it again next term. And, uh, so that was a pretty significant disappointment given how big that milestone is. I wanted to to sort of get through it and be able to move on. And, uh, it definitely, it, it, it hit home a lot. It, it really hurt. Um, I was, I was, I was, I was really bummed, but the next, so I gave myself the rest of that day off and just sort of wallowed in it and, you know, uh, began to start thinking about, uh, what, what, uh, you know, next steps were. And the next day I woke up and decided that I was going to figure out what I need to do to get back on track. And that's the mindset that I've been in ever since. Um, and, uh, in many ways, this is an opportunity to refocus, to reprioritize, um, to use this external signal, which has been, uh, you know, external signals having been rare over the past year, just because there's so little interaction, uh, at least in my experience of, of, of doing work in, in graduate school and in, in the program and everything, uh, to use this external signal to, to re-motivate and refocus myself and to uh, really realign what I need to do uh, to get back on track. And that's what I've been trying to channel is that that energy. And so I have a revitalized motivation to do what I need to do. I have a sort of reprioritized mindset of like, okay, look, what did I, you know, uh, part of it was that, you know, like I just honestly didn't do enough. I did not focus down in the way that I needed to do and I did not take it seriously. And, uh you know, that, that may or may not be hard to believe. Usually when someone says that, you're like, oh, you know, you like, and you, and you come, but like that, at the end of the day, that's really what it was for me was that I didn't take that moment and that assessment and that milestone seriously enough. Even though I set aside the pod, there was still so much more that I could have done and so much that I left on the table. And that's honestly just on me. And so that's part of a constellation of uh, things that I've been looking at and what I'm doing and what I need to do to get back on track. And uh, 
I'm honestly excited about the opportunity because uh, this this gives me a chance to to refocus um, and to to get back to where I need to be to finish my program on time and do all the things that I want to do. And so that is the energy that I've been trying to channel for the beginning part of 2021. That said, still a huge bummer, still tough to deal with. There are moments that it just is like, oh man, ugh. But the overall trend is toward using it as an opportunity to better my my habits and to realign myself with the motivation of what I'm trying to do and to just use this as an opportunity um, to really really tackle uh, all of the, the things that I feel like maybe I've, I've dropped some balls on since the pandemic began. So um, yeah, that's that's what I've been uh, up to and, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about seeing where that takes me. So my guest today on Cognitive Revolution is Denise Sikakwaptewa. Uh, she is the University Diversity and Social Transformation Professor of Psychology at the University of Michigan. And uh, she's done a lot of really interesting research on stereotype threats and particularly solo status. So meaning that uh, when you are the only uh, minority individual uh, in a particular setting, when uh, what effect does that have on your performance, right? So if you're from a group that stereotypically does not perform well, on math problems, and you're the only one of that group uh, surrounded by a, a bunch of you know people who fit the mold of what you know stereotypically you would think of as, as a mathematician. How does that stereotype threat, the technical term for it, uh, impact your performance? So she's done some really interesting key work on that, uh, as well as you know some uh, other uh, lots of other stuff in implicit bias and, and prejudice and and uh, you know social categorization. So we had a really interesting talk. I love uh, people who have stories like Denise. Um, she started off in community college and is now a big shot uh, professor at University of Michigan. So uh, that's the kind of thing that I, I, I really feel like are stories that you can dig into. And there's, there's a lot that I really loved about this conversation. So I'm really excited to share it with everyone. And without further ado, here is Denise Sikakotewa. So yeah, uh, Denise, can you tell me a little bit about where you grew up, uh, what your family was like, just the, you know, the milieu in which you, you know, uh, grew up? Sure, sure. I'd be happy to. Um, so um, I was actually born in, in Germany because my, my dad was in the Air Force, um, but then we came back to the United States pretty shortly after that. So I mostly grew up in the, um, in the Phoenix area in Arizona, um, Tempe and Phoenix, um, and um, my family, um, we come from two Native American tribes. So my dad is from the Hopi tribe, and my mom is from the Navajo, or they call Dene tribe, uh, in both in northern Arizona. Um, so we, I myself, we, the kids, there were six kids in our family. Um, we mostly grew up in the Phoenix area. Um, so. We didn't um, live on either of the reservations, although we did go up there, um, you know, to visit family and do things like that, um, you know, during the summer and such. So, yeah, yeah. So um, that's the, where my name comes from, is Sikakwaptua, which is a Hopi name. Hmm. But strangely, my, I'm enrolled. You have to have official enrollment in tribes, but I'm enrolled Navajo. So 
I'm kind of a little mishmash of <laughs> different tribal uh, and identity uh, affiliations. Yeah, that's interesting. So what, what you said, uh, what, what did your what did your dad do? Uh, he worked in um, in education. So he worked in the schools uh, up on the reservation. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I guess I'm curious, what was that connection like? Was it, you said you, you went up there periodically. Did you have like friends up there? Did you have family on, on the reservation? Uh, or, or was it a little bit, you know, what was the connection there? It was um, family. Yeah. On both sides, of course. Um, and, um, um, we, I remember spending um, time, uh, probably more time on the Navajo reservation. Um, there's a, a very famous canyon there uh, called Canyon de Chez, and it's it's sort of like a mini Grand Canyon. It's very beautiful. And my mom actually uh, grew up there as a girl uh, herding sheep, in there. and so we could go back to those, that area and back to there's a cabin down there, very very rustic, <laughs> and. Um, uh, spend time there in the summers, so um, with, with um, other extended family, and that was always um, a, a really fun thing. Yeah, that sounds really nice. Yeah. Well, so what? So was it? I guess um, did it did it feel different uh, growing up with that connection than it would have for someone else uh, who was growing up in similar Phoenix Tempe, uh, you know place but didn't have the connect did, like how, how how i guess I'm, I'm i'm asking how strongly uh did you feel connected to that as a child was it something that was there or was it was it something that was really central to your to your growing up well you know we we went to school and everything and all my friends were up in in you know in lower arizona so down in the phoenix and tempe area so that was our you know more of our our life uh our day-to-day -day life but uh, but yeah, we always did feel a strong connection, and um, um, uh, really to the land, I think in some ways, you know, just the just being down in in the canyon or or being up on the uh, Hopi uh, mesas, you know, is sort of it, it's it's um, um, it, it sort of feels in a way like a different world <laughs> compared to like urban Phoenix you know yeah and also a place where you can go where you see other people that kind of look like you know i would see people that look like me <laughs> and uh more so than than down in uh, other areas yeah and then you started off at phoenix community college was where you started studying <laughs> psychology right Mm -hmm. uh, so it was, was yeah. psychology something always uh, what you were interested in or what 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 did that uh, what was the what was the sort of genesis of that well, it's um, it, uh, it's a very non-traditional path, I'd say. So um, I I didn't really um, think about going to college. I mean, that just sort of wasn't an expectation that in my family. None of no one else went to college. You know, when I was growing up, um, and um, my family um, when my parents got divorced. My um, mom sort of moved us around a lot. She was trying to find, you know, a place uh, for her to have sort of her new beginning. And, um, and so, but, but uh, you know, she had a lot of trouble with that. So when we were young, we moved around a lot, went to a lot of different schools. And, um, um, and that made me get behind a lot in my, especially um, early high school 
education. At the same time, I was also a very independent person. So, um, uh, and I actually became independent um, by moving out um, on my own when I was 16. So I was pretty young. Um, and I went to live with um, sort of a community of people that I knew um, who were, I, I always think about them as, uh, as punk rockers, but, <laughs> but people, when they hear that, they think of like, you know, leather jackets and spiked hair and people breaking stuff. And it wasn't like that at all. It was really more like artists and musicians and, um, um, and uh, some, you know, folks uh, like that. So for a while, when I first moved out, I lived in this, um, it was a church, and, but it was no longer functioning as a church. They were going to revise it to be like um, an art center in Phoenix um, eventually. But in the meantime, uh, my one of my friends uh, was living there as a caretaker. And so um, I, I spent time um, living there with a, a bunch of other people. And, and um, it was a, you know... Um, I don't even know how to describe it. You'd have we'd have concerts in there, <laughs> just different different um, events. It was a lot of fun. Um, after that, I moved over to um, actually a house and um, with with some other folks. And I was still like high school age, so they said, "Denise, your your job is just to go to high school, go go you know finish that up." Um, and so I tried to do that, but it was not easy. Um, when we first moved into that house, we kind of scraped up enough money. That um, to get into the house, um, but we didn't scrape up enough money to pay for the initial electricity. So we were just sort of in the house. It was kind of like camping in your own house, right? Because we had like a fireplace, and you could do these things in Arizona. Um, in, in here in Michigan, it would be way too cold <laughs> to do that. But I remember um, like waking up in the morning. And I didn't have, you know, we didn't have phones, of course. We didn't have, I didn't have a clock. And I would go and go across the street to the 7-Eleven and see what time it was. And if it was early enough, and I would go and go to school. But if it was too late, then I would just say, oh, I missed it this time and I'm not going to go. Um, so that went on for a while. That's but kind of how I do grad school, you know. It's just sort of like, <laughs> you know, it's like oh, I missed it. I missed it. Me, and tomorrow know, like, I'll try again. Tomorrow, tomorrow uh, I'll try. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So but anyway, yeah. So I, I, you know, that only lasted for so long before I, I figured out it, it. You know, which it was going to take forever, really, to finish. Not forever, but but years to finish high school because how much I had missed. So I just decided not to do that anymore and entered my um, um, my work phase of working in restaurants. So um, I worked at um. Um, Sizzler, if you remember those things. I was a, oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah. I went to the Sizzler at least every month when I was living in L.A. Yeah. I missed the hell out of Sizzler. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I worked there. I worked at a sandwich shop for a long time. Um, and, um, and there came a point where I, I sort of had a, a crossroads, I guess, um, because the owner of the, the, the sandwich shop that I was working at um, I, I was like a manager there. He was opening up another branch and he said, that can be your store. You can do that and, and run that place on your own. And, you know, and so that, so that was an idea. But then I was wondering about the other path. Um, and, and I think this was interesting because the, the sandwich shop was located in a medical center. So we saw a lot of the same people, you know, who worked there. And this woman, she was a pharmacist, came to me and said, um, 
she wanted to talk to me. And so I went to her office and she was basically telling me, you, you shouldn't be working here. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And she said, you know, um, she, she, she said I, that I had intelligence. She says, I can see it in your eyes and you shouldn't be working at this job. You should be having a career. <laughs> it was a weird conversation for somebody I didn't barely knew. Um, but she tried to like, you know, hook me up with some of their gigs you know, in her world, which was like the world of, of pharmacies. But none of that really worked out, but it stuck with me, right? So when I got to that point where I could say, okay, I could go on this path to be in the restaurant business, or maybe I can find another career, right? So I chose that and I didn't do the restaurant thing. And that's when I started going to the community college. So, um, which I went to like after work. So I get off at four and I go to community college at five. And uh, yeah, that's how it started. It's just sort of some um, little things, I guess, can make a, a difference. Right? If somebody says something to you, <laughs> it sticks with you. Uh, it made a difference for me. Yeah. Wow. I love yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but so anyway, you were asking about psychology. Yeah. Well, I, I, th this is, this is much more interesting than psychology. Uh, <laughs> the, so was that, was that a hard decision for you? Because I, I feel like there's a little bit more immediate gratification in the path of, well, you know, here's, here's your restaurant. You can be yeah. making a little bit more dough. Uh, you can have, you know, sort of a feeling of, controlling your environment perhaps and and you can mm -hmm. see you know sort of the immediate effects of it where you know studying it takes a long time for the for the yeah. path there so was that a difficult decision for you a little bit because you know that was a comfortable world that i knew you know i knew how to do that work um so it it was easier i guess um but there was also you know, kind of a label that I was carrying around, which was high school dropout, right? <laughs> and I knew that there were a lot of low expectations about me or who I was based on that kind of a label. So I was ready to to do something about that, you know? So I think that was also a big motivator was kind of to, um, you know, change people's perception of me based on, on that history. Right, yeah. So, okay, so what about your friends that you were living with uh, post 16? So first of all, are you still in touch with any of them? Uh, and and then you know, are, are they surprised that you turned out to be, a, you know, a psychology <laughs> professor and all this sort of stuff? Or were they like, no, yeah, of course you, of course you did. What what what's what's, what, what's their take on all that? What, how would they perceive you? I'm in touch with a few of them, um, and I don't know. I mean, I guess because over the years they could sort of see um, my progression. You know, um, and they were very encouraging. For, you know, as I mentioned, they said your job is to go to school, so so they they wanted me to, um, you know, to succeed. But yeah, I don't know. I, I guess it is a little bit surprising, but um, um, but I think that they knew I was I was pretty determined and serious about it. You know, once I got started in college, and so um, whereas I didn't like high school, I, I loved college. When I got to the community college and was on that campus, it was just like this is where I want to be. Why, why do I want to work anywhere else? <laughs> this is where people go and they're learning things and there's smart professors. And, you know, so I, I, that's when I got to the, the, the community college campus, that's where I felt I belonged once I got there. And then, yeah. so how did you decide on psychology? Um, 
I how did psychology her. decide on you? <laughs> um, during the, the, you know, the days when I was growing up, I remember somebody had a psychology textbook that I picked up and just read for fun. Um, and so I, I, I didn't think of, at that time about being a psychologist. But when I went to um, uh, enroll in the community college, um, I took two courses, and one of them was uh, introduction to English because I thought I was going to be a writer. You know, I thought I was going to write novels and things like that. And um, but the other course I decided on was introduction to psychology, and I think that was based on me looking through that textbook. It just sounded pretty cool, and and from that course, um, that was um, a, a turning point. Is I, I was able to decide, like in that first semester of community college, that I was going to be a psychology professor. I <laughs> said, so "This is what I should do." And oh I wow! Just, so it was it was a sort of moment of clarity. <laughs> wow! And I, I'm going to do it, and so I I figured out what I had to do. You know, I was just, you had to go to you know your uh, community college. I knew I had to transfer to university, so I did that. I transferred to the four-year university, Arizona State University. Um, and I knew I had to go to grad school. So it was just sort of a laid out path once I made that decision that I want to be a psychology professor. So, so um, that um, I, I didn't have to go through some agonizing like other people too, because I made up my mind pretty early. That's great. So, okay. So I guess two questions from that was, first of all, were, was there a time when you sort of most questioned that path? Was there a time when you, you felt like it wasn't going well and you thought about quitting? Uh, or do you just put your head down and you just, you know, mow forward? Hmm. Um, I think that I never thought about quitting, but I did kind of think like I wasn't, it, maybe this isn't going to work out, you know? Uh, mostly people have those feelings around the time of tenure. <laughs> So that's when I was starting to feel like, you know, maybe, you know, maybe I haven't done well enough. Maybe, you know, um, uh, those were moments where I began to wonder, like, how, um, you know, whether I could stay, I guess, is a way to put it. But mostly, yeah, I was just, um, I was fairly um, um, uh, de determined to just move forward. I guess there are moments in grad school, too, you know, when you start to wonder, like, Am I going to get a job? You know, um, you know, and uh, so those were um, also um, moments that you kind of just have to do your best work and get through. Yep. And then I guess the other side of that that coin is 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 there a time where you felt like you started to really get traction? You're like, oh hey, like this is this is actually a thing. I'm 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 doing something that I feel is. Did, did, was there a, was there a time when you started to to get that research traction? Um. I, uh, uh, once I found out what research was, um, then I really tried to just incorporate it into all the things I was doing, even at the community college, right? So, um, there was uh, a professor, uh, there, and of course they don't have research labs and stuff in community college. So, um, he, but he was uh, looking at student data on outcomes, um, uh, student outcomes as a result of various programs and stuff. So I was hired on to work with him um, initially there. And this from there, I just tried to keep incorporating research um, into things that I did, like in other courses, I'd, for a term paper, I would ask, can I 
can I like collect some data and write it up and turn that in for my course paper? You know, in this, you know, so I was always trying to do that. So I felt like I, I was, um, 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 I, I guess I felt like I really got the strongest traction when I went to uh, Arizona State and was able to start working in labs of um, more famous social psychologists. So the reason I'm in social psychology is because of Bob Cialdini, who is a, um, a, a famous um, a social psychologist who works in the areas of um, About influence, uh, persuasion right? and attitudes. Uh, pardon me? Uh, the book Influence. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And um, I took his introduction to psychology course and that that got me hooked into social psychology. Um, he and persuaded you, I, it sounds like. Yeah, he persuaded. <laughs> and then I was able to work in his lab, wow. you know, as a research yeah. assistant. So that's where I really felt, I think, yeah, that I was gaining traction, as you put it. And then when I got accepted at Ohio State University for graduate school, and that was a very major program, um, then I also felt like, OK, I'm getting a good foundation here. Right. So speaking of influence, what are the, you know, sort of handful of books that most in, impacted, influenced your, your development? Uh, you know, any time from, uh, you know, sort of growing up through graduate school or e- even now, if there's, if things, you know, the, just, what, what comes to mind? It doesn't even have to be academic, psycho- psychological mm-hmm. stuff. You know, if there's poetry, memoirs, novels, whatever, just what, what can you, can you uh, think of a couple books that have in, like, you know, just really done a lot for the way you think? Yeah. Um, well, th- this is a more, this, this is not one that's from way back, it's more recent, but of course, you know, the Claude Steele book on Whistling Vivaldi, uh, his book on stereotype threat was really good to kind of see because it talks about sort of the progression of an idea to become like a major theory <laughs> in the field and how that came about and and also kind of solidified, you know, some experiences that a lot of um, people from underrepresented groups have, you know, in terms of you know, standing out in terms of that um, identity or being the target of stereotypes about that identity. So that one, um, I, I know and have read many times and assigned it um, in some of my classes. Um, and then similarly, like uh, the book by um, um, Benaji and Greenwald called Blind Spot, which is about um, implicit biases, was another um, real classic one that I often turn to. But I think a lot of the other books that I um, uh, made an impact on me are what you might call how-to books. <laughs> so there's uh, one by Stephen King that's called On Writing, and, um, and it just talks about how, uh, you know, his life as a writer, you know, and how he writes and, you know, how uh, what, what makes good writing. And so that one was also really... Um, interesting that I, I, I read growing up. Um, and then there, nowadays, um, I often turn to Paul Sylvia's book called How to Write a Lot, which is about, you know, writing, act, doing academic writing, which I reread when I need more motivation, when I can't get started, then I go back and look at that book again, and gives me um, um, new energy to, to sit down and start writing again. I love that you're into uh, writing manuals. Uh, I, yeah. <laughs> I haven't read um, How to Write a Lot, though I, I'm familiar with the title. I um, yeah. uh, I have read the the Stephen King one, though, on writing, which incidentally is primarily about how to write a lot. Because if Stephen King yeah. does one thing, it's writing a lot. 
Yeah, um, true. But yeah, that's uh, again, it's it's one of those books, uh, like you're saying for the Cloud Steel book, that gives you the progression of like, okay, here is what it looked like for me to, uh, you know, sort of get started in this and build into this 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 larger thing because it starts off with him, you know, sort of getting his first uh, uh, book advance and, and and everything like that. So I I, I yeah. remember reading that one uh, very much. That was that's a really cool book. Yeah, and it also made the point that you have to be a good writer. You also have to read a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I, I, I that really resonates with me because right now I think I really learned to write journal articles by being like a reviewer, yeah. or um, and later on a journal editor. Is when you start reading a bunch of other papers, um, and you know, uh, you sort of learn what makes a good article. Are there other people whose writing you most admire, you know, primarily academics? Is there anyone who uh, you think writes really nice prose in their papers or structure their, their papers in a really, uh, you know, a really a good way? Gosh, what a good question. Um, I think almost all the papers I read in psychology are great pieces of writing because once they, you know, they finally get out the door, you know, into print, um, you know, there's been you know, various rounds of revision, and um, so you get really nice end products. But um, I'd say I've always enjoyed the writing of Buju Dasgupta, um, and someone, a social psychologist at Amherst, um, and, um, and Jesse Smith, um, who's at UC, I'm sorry, University of Colorado. Um, um, things I've re- read by them have always just been. Um, like stories they tell, you know, about about the study and uh, have a nice narrative tone to them. Yeah, really cool. Um, let's see. So we mentioned stereotype threat. Uh, I want to ask you a little bit about your your work. So your your most cited paper is uh, solo status stereotype threat and performance expectancies their effects on women's performance. So um, you know. As far as my understanding goes, this is a very central sort of you know uh, piece in your overall canon of research. So I was wondering if you could just say a little bit about uh, you know your overall program of research and how it's changed since this paper was published in in two thousand three. Okay, yeah, um, uh, my work has always been um, had a theme around stereotyping, and that is that there. Are, stereotypers, you know, so people who have stereotypes and use them in their perception, judgments, and treatment of other people. And then there are people who are the stereotyped, right? So the targets of stereo of, of those stereotypes. So I've tried to write papers and do work um, sort of both sides there, both sides of that coin. So um, the work on um, stereotypers had a lot to do with um, Implicit biases, implicit stereotypes, how those um, are, are stereotypes can be expressed in um, in the things that we say. Um, and, and there were a lot of work we did on uh, linguistic biases, um, biases in the way we explain other people's behavior, such that it actually serves to promote uh, and maintain our own stereotypes, because we wind up like explaining away stuff that uh, is in uh, that disconfirms our stereotypes and turning it around so it actually winds up to be a confirmation. <laughs> so we go through these sorts of um, gymnastics a lot of times to actually um, uh, 
do things um, in information processing to um, to maintain our stereotypes. And so in some of our work, we measured those types of um, linguistic biases and saw that they had a relationship to behavioral outcomes with people from those stereotype groups, such that if you showed more of this, let's say that, that, that explanation bias, that attribution bias, um, those folks, um, when they did that in terms of race stereotypes, actually had a more negative um, uh, racial inter uh, interaction with a, um, an African-American research assistant. So we were able to see these connections. Um, and then um, the work on the stereotyped, um, a, a lot of that work was um, in the area of solo status. So that is where you are the only one who's different in terms of a, a social identity. Um, stand, you kind of stand out, you're the only woman in, in the engineering class, or you're the only black person in the classroom. And um, we looked at the effects of that on, um, on people's performances, uh, their test performance, on the way that they feel about themselves. People start to feel really um, the implications of their identity in that um, situation. So if you're the only black person in the class, you, they come to feel like um, my performance here doesn't reflect just on me, but on us, right? <laughs> on, on other black people. And so it, it becomes, you know, to create a certain degree of performance apprehension in conjunction with um, sort of a, a, a strong, um, stronger feelings of racial identity and racial representation. Um, and so um, uh, the work was, um, um, in a way, sort of connecting that now by by looking at how being in um, this solo status situation um, can actually promote the, those patterns of implicit stereotyping that I discussed earlier. So, um, in not only about uh, other people and other groups, but also even about your own group, because you you wind up thinking about um, those stereotypes about your own group uh, become activated when your um, when that identity becomes salient. So um, yeah, so that's what I've been um, uh, was working on initially. Um, nowadays, I'm working moving a bit more into how those implicit stereotypes leak out and people's behavior often unintentionally into things they say and do. Um, and that's become an area of work um, that we're doing in microaggressions and how they, um, uh, uh, how they are, are manifested in, in different um, interactions. Right. So here's, here's a question sort of, Having looked at that realm of, of stuff for, you know, the past uh, couple decades, what sort of changes would you would you like to see in the academy and in, in universities and all that sort of stuff, you know, so the more kinds of people can, uh, you know, succeed and be set up for success and, and, and all that sort of stuff? What do you think are the big things that we need to do um, uh, in, in academia and in higher education in general? Yeah, it's a important question, and um, it's something that I've actually an area I've worked in um, in some roles that I've taken on at the University of Michigan. So, for example, we um, we have an advance program. Advance is um, an NSF um, uh, program that uh, the goal is to uh, promote more diversity in, in academia and in, in sciences and such. And so when the university gets these kind of grants, you, they can use it to um, address, um, you know, recruitment and retention of, of female faculty and of 
um, people um, from other various underrepresented groups. And so I was worked, I worked with our advanced program here at Michigan um, to do that because that is a, um, you know, I know from my work that a lack of diversity has problems, right? People don't perform at their best when uh, they stand out in terms of a negatively stereotyped identity. So if you wind up being the only black person in your department, right, it's not, um, uh, conducive to your your best outcomes, um, and so yes, I think increasing um, 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 diversity is is um, a, a significant uh, endeavor that we need to undertake to allow people to be able to learn and work in environments where their their best selves can can uh, can come out and and be expressed. Um, I also think that uh, I'm very interested in the effects of um the environment even in terms of the objects there right that that send signals as to who's valued and who's not valued there you know so one one that we've uh considered is the um if you've ever go you, you've probably seen these in academic departments but there can be an array of like portraits and often it's like all the past previous department chairs or the major award winners or contributors in, in this field. And they're almost all the time like this whole wall of white men who <laughs> end there, um, you know. And so when, when people see these things, they kind of, it's it sends this message about kind of, you know, who are the big hitters? Who, who, who are the big contributors and the valued people? What do they look like? And so that, um, that serves as a cue, right, that can um, trigger things that we know. Um, can be detrimental to people's outcomes, including stereotype threat, including feelings of being overly distinctive, like in the solo status situation. And so when we had that, like in my department, we had that array right in the room where people would give job talks and other kinds of performances. And um, and we, we um, you know, I was able to say, we need to change that, because right? <laughs> that um, can, provide a less optimal environment for people who aren't a member of that particular demographic, right? And so we were able to move those um, uh, out of the colloquium room. Um, yeah, but that, yeah, that's I mean, actually I really it, interesting. I, I think that, that that's that's a really fascinating point. Um, yeah. I'm wondering if there is a way of, you know, framing it more positively, right? Because the negative way to interpret, you know, uh, if you're if you're a, a person of color, some sort of minority, looking at the wall of white dudes, uh, one thing is to say, uh, you know, I'm not part of the club. I don't belong. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if there's a way to encourage a positive uh, framing of that, which is say, I uh, now have been uh, accepted into a club of people uh, that I, you know, look up to. Traditionally, mm -hmm. people like me have not uh, been accepted into it. And this is, wow, how how incredible mm -hmm. is that, right? Feeling connected to uh, the lineage, recognizing that a significant part of it is fucked up. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, being like, well, great, I get I get the opportunity to be the person, uh, you know, to step in and, 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 and change that situation. Do you think there's any way to encourage it's I guess it's the opposite of stereotype mm -hmm. threat in a way. Um, yeah. and, you know, is, is there any way to make a positive out of solo status like that? I think there can be if but it really comes from 
what the other people in the setting are doing and saying to you, right? And so um, if they're, if you're seeing these walls of fame uh, um, also combined with experiencing a lot of, let's say, microaggressions or a lot of other forms of stereotyping or, you know, that that's not going to allow you to have that vision that you just, you just uh, said. Um, but on the other hand, um, if I think such a framework could be possible, but it would have to come um, from uh, positive behavior from the people around you. And that's, that's not the easiest thing to do is to actually uh, change people's uh, patterns of, of uh, even unintentional stereotyping that they do of others. Yeah. So, um, I mean, Claude Steele wrote about it, right. When he talked about his sort of wise intervention that, you know, telling people, yeah, you're different, but I know I, I, I have firm faith that you have what it takes to be here. You know, I have high expectations, but you can meet them. You know, so that, yeah, that kind of message, if that kind of message could come, um, that can go a long way to over to counter, I guess, the other kinds of effects of feeling like you're not welcome in the club. So this is taking a little bit more back to the personal aspects of it, but I'm curious to know, you know, was there an aspect of, you know, starting to think about all this sort of stuff, solo status, stereotype threats, um, uh, uh, implicit bias, that sort of stuff. How did it connect back to your personal experience? Was it something that you looked at and be like, hey, that that's happened to me. What's the what's what's going on here? Uh, what did, mm-hmm. I mean, is can you speak to to that? You know, how, how that that sort of came about for you? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um uh, I, I I know that that has to have a uh, an, must have had a major influence because um, really when you know when I was growing up and especially in college there weren't really not any other Native American people there um, and certainly not on the faculty right so um, um, I was always you know in that situation of being the only one <laughs> so uh, I, I know that that's probably where all my interest in that really um, stemmed from was having that ex- personal experience myself and then the um, the implicit stereotyping um, um, you know anyone who's in a member of an underrepresented group or most even to say anyone can um, experience that um, has a story to tell about you know, the time when someone said this to you or that to you and how you have to, often in a very well-meaning way, right? <laughs> and so, um, you wind up ruminating on it and it takes, you know, time to figure out which, what did that mean? What should I have said? Should I have said anything? Um, and um, um, so, yeah, I, I think that I became um, interested in these sorts of unintentional and well-meaning things that people say and do, but still that that, that reflect their underlying stereotypes, just having experienced that in, um, in terms of my, you know, uh, my, my life getting here to this point. But there was no, um, like, one, I guess, most oh. dramatic, formative experience that, uh, like, most brought it home for you, right? Was there, yeah, was it just, like, like you said, the sort of, bubbling up of microaggressions over time rather than one big, 
you know moment. Yeah, I, I, I would I would say that. I mean, I, there's there's you know more egregious things that happened that wouldn't be that would not be in the in the form of microaggressions, but really more like overt discrimination that I you know. But um, but. And that those can be formative as well, but really, um, it, I think it's sort of a cumulative effect that, that is even, maybe even more significant because you can explain away like one time, <laughs> but when it, when it goes over and over, that's a little, you kind of realize um, the, um, um, uh, that it can't be explained away as easily and that you have to understand it's a little more systematic or that there's, um, um, it's not just one person did something bad to you. <laughs> you know, it's more like out there in the air and in society. So I've got one more question for you here as we're wrapping up, uh, which is what is the most common advice that you give to your students? Uh, particularly if there's one thing that you find yourself saying, especially to you know underrepresented students and, and, and that sort of stuff. Is there anything that comes to mind uh, as the the biggest points that you've tried to get across as a mentor throughout the years? Well, um, I, I've always tried to create a, 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 like a culture of collaboration in, in our lab. I've always worked with a lot of graduate students, so we um, I encourage them to um, to take advantage of collaborations with each other and you know obviously with me. And um, and to help each other. That's how we, you know, our best work is when we work together. Um, um, so along with that, I think that one thing I try to really um, um, send home as a message to students, especially when they're starting to think about jobs and stuff. But really, it's people don't realize the real benefit of just being a good person or being or what I would call a good egg, right? So, you know, um, it's everything works better when people are helping each other. We don't want to have competitions over things that, you know, this is not like one person can win and the, the rest of you can't win. Everyone can win. <laughs> and so I'm always trying to tell people, you know, do, do, do your work. I mean, you want, you want to do all your standard, you know, um, 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 scholarly um, training, you know, uh, but you also want to volunteer for things and do your part to help out in the department, to help out your fellow graduate students, um, to mentor the undergrads, you know, you want to make a lasting positive impression. And I, I find that um, those students who um, who are really excel at that, of giving of themselves, are the ones who really have done really well in the in, afterwards <laughs> and um yeah it, it's just a good habit to get into is to work collaboratively and be selfless in uh trying to help others what a lovely notion that's awesome uh yeah i think that's that's great and it, it seems like that's probably an undervalued attribute uh that, that we probably do not do enough to instill into our students <laughs> um, i love that being a person first being a a scholar, an academic, a researcher, second, you know. Mm -hmm. So anyway, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. I really enjoyed this. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, it was, it was fun to hear your story and especially, you know, growing up uh, through through community college and everything. Uh, I, I love that moment where just like, 
boom, this is what I'm going to do, psychology professor. However long later, you know, Michigan uh, big shot, it's great. It's a great story. It's a great story. <laughs> thank you. Love it. All right. Um, well, uh, thank you for doing this. I'll, I'll let you know when the, uh, the episode's going to come out, okay? Okay. And, uh, good. Uh, you know, I'll send you an email, but uh, in the meantime, thanks. And uh, I'll, uh, I'll uh, talk to you later. Okay. Okay. Sounds All right. Good. Bye. Thank Have you. Have a good rest of your day. Bye. You Bye. That was my conversation with Denise Sikakwaptewa. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you want to connect with me, you can follow me on Twitter at Cody Commerce. I have my newsletter, which you can subscribe to on my website, codycommerce.com slash newsletter. And then also check out the book list that uh, I've been publishing as a sort of uh, add-on to Cognitive Evolution. If you're, if you're interested in, in hearing more about the, some of the titles that we mentioned today and, and, and maybe purchasing a couple of them, check it out um, on my list uh, associated with bookshop, bookshop.org. Anyway, uh, thank you for listening, and I'll be back next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution. Thank you.